0: America's motto, its kind of foundational statement is, in God we trust. But a spirituality less tied to the usual denominations seems to be taking hold. In fact, in religious affiliation surveys, the fastest growing response is nothing in particular. And there hasn't traditionally been a culture of surfing in China. If anything, it had been seen as a dangerous pursuit to be looked down upon. That is changing and it's women who are leading the charge to ride the waves. First up, though. Even if you haven't heard of NVIDIA, chances are you've used a product that contains one of its chips. The American multinational was co-founded nearly three decades ago. But in the past five years, its market value has skyrocketed by a factor of 15, eclipsing that of its biggest rival, Intel, and giving co-founder Jensen Huang plenty to crow about.
1: There are powerful forces shaping the world's industries. Accelerated computing that we pioneered
2: has supercharged scientific discovery while providing the computer industry a path forward.
0: Last September, the company announced plans to get even bigger by acquiring Arm, a British firm whose chips are in most of the world's smartphones, for $40 billion. That bid is a window into how few companies are behind the products and services now available to billions, and just how pervasive artificial intelligence is becoming in all of them. Now it's up to regulators to approve the deal, Britain's competition authorities are due to rule in the coming week, and China's have just delayed their formal review of it. NVIDIA has a firm grip on a fast-growing market, one that authorities don't want to see turn into a stranglehold.
3: NVIDIA is really well-established in AI already. And remember, machine learning is not just about geeky Go-playing competitions. AI is increasingly important in a huge number of industries.
0: Tamsin Booth is The Economist's technology and business editor.
3: And NVIDIA's bid to buy ARM would help the company really dominate that market of big companies like Walmart, Disney, L'Oreal, adopting these practical AI technologies.
0: So you say that NVIDIA has dominated in the the artificial intelligence end of, of this business. How did that come to be?
3: Well, I don't think anyone predicted it. NVIDIA started as a gaming company back in 1993. Jensen Huang, the founder, and his friends, they really just wanted to make video game graphics a lot better. And so they made these things, GPUs, graphics processing units, and they essentially make video games look great. But they turned out to have this extraordinary extra function. In 2012, a computer scientist called Alex Krzyzewski won the famous ImageNet competition, which is a test for AI, by using GPUs. He had this idea of using NVIDIA's GPUs instead of CPUs, so the more traditional kind of brain of computers, to train a neural network with a huge data set of images. And it worked. He basically cracked AI. Google noticed, and the rest is history, as they say, Then in 2014 and 15, Mr. Huang swarmed his whole company around artificial intelligence and kind of just went really focused on that avenue for the company.
0: So a bit of blind luck then that their answer for video games turned out to be more widely useful.
3: Well, that's how a lot of people see it, that the kind of the market came to them, that GPUs are just a sort of repurposed technology. But I do think there's more to it than that. So NVIDIA really early on developed this software language called CUDA, which allow GPUs to be used for other purposes. And to go a little bit into the technology of it, I mean, essentially, the GPU accelerates what the CPU is doing, the, the central processing unit. And the combination of that produces this, sort of, this notion of accelerated computing, just a lot more compute power that can deliver what AI needs.
0: And that speed up then is useful far beyond things like crypto mining, gaming, even AI research.
3: Yes, that's right. There's a great need for some acceleration right now, because as you know, we've done an awful lot of virtualization and migration to cloud computing to other forces, which have provided extra compute power. So this sort of acceleration is a very attractive opportunity. Um, Analysts reckon that over the next five to 10 years, about half of the 80 to 90 billion that is currently annually spent on servers could shift to to this accelerated computing model. It's basically a way of getting more and more compute power without having to spend multiples more on servers. So NVIDIA and others think that the global market for accelerated computing will all be worth much more than $100 billion a year. So it's a big market.
0: Where does this desire to acquire ARM fit in strategically?
3: Arm is a British company that designs zippy, really notably energy-efficient chips for most of the world's smartphones. And they specialize in making blueprints for CPUs. What NVIDIA lacks at the moment is really powerful CPUs. So the idea is to use Arm's design prowess to engineer CPUs for data centers, and that would complement the company's existing strengths in GPUs. If NVIDIA manages to own ARM, it really gives it a lot of leverage and optionality and new opportunities in the field that it wants to dominate.
0: And how likely do you think it is that that deal will go through?
3: Well, investors, I know, are giving it about 20% chance at the moment, which is pretty low. I mean, just to understand the barriers that are here, ARM is famously the kind of neutral Switzerland of chip making. It supplies its chip blueprints to companies all over the world that are fierce rivals of each other. Apple, Qualcomm, Huawei, Nvidia. Although Nvidia has said that there's absolutely no way it's going to privilege itself at the expense of rivals, the key worry is that over time that could happen. You've also got a geopolitical element because of the US-China tech standoff. So Chinese chip makers in particular would worry about an American company, NVIDIA. The federal government could get control potentially over ARM um, chip designs going to Chinese chip makers to their detriment. So I think that in particularly in Europe and China, regulators are taking a pretty hard look at the deal.
0: But about those worries about utter market dominance that regulators might have. I mean, are there not competitors who could kind of sneak up and and nip at Nvidia's heels or or emerged companies' heels?
3: There certainly are. The assumption a few years ago is that GPUs are an accidental technology in the context of machine learning, and so the idea was that it's just really a matter of time before something more specialized and better came along. So you've got AI startups coming up with their own kind of individual technologies, their individual kinds of chip that they out as much more specialised for AI. You've also got the chip-making giants, Intel and AMD, somewhat belatedly catching up with NVIDIA and accelerated computing and making acquisitions to that end. But the biggest threat of all to NVIDIA is really some of its own biggest customers, who, by the way, are much bigger than it, which is always a bit worrying. So that's the tech giants. Google, Microsoft, Baidu, Alibaba, most of all AWS, Amazon Web Services, they have all come up with their own kinds of custom silicon.
0: So quite a few competitors, big ones, even its own customers, you say, and uh, an evidently low likelihood of this merger going on. Would NVIDIA survive even if this deal with Arm doesn't go through it? Would the competition prove too much without it?
3: I mean, this is a company that has gone from a market valuation of 31 billion to 486 billion in just a number of years. And so if you think about that, it's really halfway to becoming one of the tech giants, the $1 trillion plus companies in the world it's got three big advantages it's got that software ecosystem it's also completely focused on machine learning and accelerated computing whereas some of its rivals you know they've got a lot else going on and lastly i'd say that nvidia has this sort of quite sort of startup-y kind of culture it's not at all complacent so if they need to move beyond the gpu they probably will
0: temson thank you very much for joining us thanks jason One Nation Under God. It's right there in the Pledge of Allegiance that many American schoolchildren still say every day.
1: With liberty and justice for all.
0: America was founded by pious pilgrims. It pioneered the televised spectacle of megachurch meetings. In the name of Jesus. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Of the prophet of God. It's a place where any serious contender for the presidency must be seen to partake in church services. God bless you. God bless the United States of America. Thank you. And God bless America.
1: Spread the faith. God love you all. May God bless America. And may God protect America.
0: But a relentless change in attitudes is unpicking the myth of America as a particularly God-fearing nation.
2: What surveys are revealing is that America's religious landscape is changing very quickly.
0: Johnny Williams writes about American affairs for The Economist.
2: A recent poll by Gallup, which is a pollster, revealed that for the first time since they have been tracking, a majority of Americans do not belong to a church.
0: So that is to say they're identifying as atheists?
2: Some are. So depending on the poll that you look at, about between 22% to even up to 33% of Americans fall under the category of religiously unaffiliated. Now, Oftentimes, we think of being religiously unaffiliated as being irreligious, but that's not what it means. Under religiously unaffiliated, you have atheists, you have agnostics, and you have a group that simply identifies as nothing in particular. Now, atheists and agnostics, each of them comprise about 5 to 6% of the population— But nothing in particular is they comprise up to a quarter of America's population, and they are the fastest growing religious group in America. So since 2008 or so, their ranks have swelled by 60 percent. Now, this is a very peculiar group because many of them still believe in God, but largely do not go to church. So they don't fit neatly into most categories when it comes to religious affiliation. And really, they're the ones who are reshaping America's religious landscape. And what is it that's behind
0: this rise of the nothing in particulars?
2: So I spoke with a social scientist. His name is Ryan Birch, who wrote a book called The Nuns. And a few of the things that he says about explaining the rise of the nothing in particular is that it is perhaps becoming more acceptable not to identify as a Christian in America, which wasn't the case in previous decades. And the other aspect is that the religious unaffiliation is a sign not just of disaffiliation with religious institutions and groups, but a larger disaffiliation
1: with institutions at large. So the rise in nothing in particulars is probably predicated by the fact that many of them are just checking out from all vestiges of society. It just seems like they don't care about what's going on in society, and therefore they're sort of walling themselves off from all the vestiges of what popular culture and society look like. This is
2: a trend that we have seen in America, especially happening in the past 50 years or so. So perhaps what this group signifies is a very large segment of the American people – who are feeling more and more alienated from society and who are becoming more and more anti-institutional.
0: And what do we know demographically about the, the nothing in particulars?
2: You know, in some ways, they are remarkably average, which makes it very hard to identify who they are. They're just as likely to be a man as a woman. They are just as likely to have children as other groups. And they're pretty politically average as well.
1: The only differences are they have you know, very low levels of education. Only 20% have a bachelor's degree or more, and 60% of them make less than $50,000 a year, which means they have lower-than-average incomes. They're the ones who work in blue-collar jobs, factory-working kind of jobs. And as we know, globalization has sort of taken a lot of those jobs away, and the ones that are left have worked longer hours for lower pay and less benefits. So they really feel like they've gotten the short end of the stick when it comes to globalization. And while well, atheists are
2: among the religious groups that are the most politically involved, most likely to participate in political causes, nothing in particular is are extremely politically disengaged. They are the most unlikely to attend a rally for a politician or to put up a sign in their yard. What is interesting, too, about them is that a majority of them actually believe in God. Yet they reject allegiance to any religious group and are skeptical of institutional authorities.
0: It it sounds as if they're kind of a a willful outgroup, not just in religious terms, but in many other ways. I mean, what does the growth in numbers signify, do you think, about the American polity?
2: So when you think about democracy, for a democracy to be successful it requires the participation of all citizens. Every person that's a part of it is a stakeholder. And what you're seeing is this is a group of people who are less and less interested in participating in their communities and in democracy. So it poses a serious challenge to the
1: American democratic order. And I spoke to Mr. Berg about this. The fact they're growing rapidly is showing us that we're seeing this larger and larger group of disaffected americans which those are the people who are getting angry when things don't work out those are the ones who lash out those are the ones who are dying deaths of despair those are the people we should be worrying about because they're the ones really being left behind by the 21st century
0: and aside from that it, it does kind of subvert the idea of america as an inherently religious even puritanical place
2: Yes, there is this idea of America as being a Christian nation. And a lot of conservatives, especially politicians, but also conservative Christians, fear that, for example, leftists and progressives are pushing America towards socialism and atheism. Uh, it, It is not going that way. And in some ways, America is changing religiously, but it's a more complicated picture. It is not completely sliding toward secularism, but what you're seeing is that there are people who really are not rejecting religion, but what they are rejecting is authorities and what they are rejecting is institutions. And so America is changing religiously, but often not in the way that a lot of the more conservative elements of the American people think it is.
0: Johnny, thank you very much for your time.
2: Thank you for having me, Jason. I appreciate it.
0: and crushes another big section third move he'll trim it with the front side float this year's olympics were the first to feature surfing one of the five sports intended to bring flashier and more youthful pursuits to the games last week carissa moore an american won gold among the women
1: Look at this new and she realizes it carissa moore oh my goodness is a gold medalist how happy is she, She's gonna
0: Brazil's Ítalo Ferreira claimed the men's gold.
1: And now a gold medal belongs to Ítalo Ferreira.
0: <laughs> the rest of the medal table featured other well-known surfing nations, such as Australia and South Africa. One that wasn't in contention was China. But that could soon change.
4: I recently went to the southern Chinese island of Hainan, which is a tropical island not far off the coast of Vietnam.
0: Stephanie Studer is a China correspondent for The Economist and is based in Beijing.
4: It has palm-lined beaches and lovely balmy winters, and tourists flock there during the colder months. I went there this summer because it's become a big surfing destination for Chinese from the cities. I spoke to a tourist who had come from Yunnan province. It was her first time seeing the sea, and she told me that surfing was a favourite activity.
3: uh, Uh,
4: Because she liked the challenge and that feeling of success when you actually managed to stand up on the board. And she's not alone. In fact, there are more and more women who are interested in surfing in China.
0: And is surfing a big pursuit in China more generally?
4: It hasn't been. There is no real culture of surfing in China. An American expat organized a contest in Hainan about a decade ago, and he managed to gather 30-something surfers to participate, and just two of them at the time were Chinese, But that's all changed because now China has a national surf team and its academy is based on the island. And indeed, it was training to be ready for the Olympics, but the team didn't make the cut this time round. The local government, however, is keen to encourage more surfers, not just from China, but from around the world to come to Hainan as the next big surfing destination, And surfers there told me that it does have the best waves in China.
0: And that local government support is is making a difference?
4: Yes, it is. And I think it's encouraging more young Chinese to take up a sport that had been looked down upon, both by local officials who surfers told me used to actually pull over cars when they saw them loaded with surfboards and give the passengers a bit of a ticking off and tell them to be careful. The other big boost has been a reality TV show that was launched last summer called Summer Surf Shop. And it gets contestants to run a shop and try out surfing. And in the show's opening, they describe surfing as a sport where you will go against the wind
1: to
4: show your brave and strong spirit and vigorous
1: figure.
4: The perfect marriage of human and nature. And then, of course, you have the pandemic, which has forced a lot of Chinese to take holidays at home. Very few are traveling overseas now, and they want to go somewhere tropical. So they're all heading to Hainan.
0: But you mentioned that it's particularly popular with women.
4: Yes, that's right. In fact, there are some standout female surfers in China who first rose to prominence perhaps a decade ago. Darcy Liu, China's first professional female surfer, now runs surfing retreats for women. She feels very strongly that surfing is not just about the sport, but about the lifestyle and the culture that comes with it.
1: For me, surfing is that key, opened up so many opportunities and so many doors of way of
4: living life. And she also hopes that it can help change societal expectations of how a woman should act.
1: If our parents tell us, say, you're a girl, you should behave this way. And you're a boy, you should behave this way. But for me, surfing showed me a bigger world.
0: Thanks very much for joining us, Stephanie.
4: Thank you, Jason.